We are speaking with uh, drummer Artemis Pyle. The new movie is a Street Survivors, the true story of the uh, Leonard Skinner plane crash. And as we say here in Montreal, uh, bonjour, Artemis. How are you? Hey, man, I wish the whole world could be like Canada. Canada's a nice place to be. I don't know if you've been recently, but it's, uh, I mean, other than the winter, it's its its a nice uh, nice place to live. Um, we're going to talk about this. What, is, what does everybody call you? Mitch. Lafon, the one and only. Well, uh, nice to meet you, Mitch. Yeah, pleasure. Pleasure's mine. Um, let us uh, let's let's dive right into this uh, this movie. First of all, talk to me about the, the process of getting it made because it wasn't just I'm going to write this script and I'm going to get this movie made. There were lawsuits involved. There was a lot of raw emotion. Talk to me about actually getting it to this point where. It's been released, and people can go see it. Well, you know, um, we actually released it at the beginning of COVID. Right. Um, down here in the States. And um, it's been out for a while, but I'm, I'm looking at the movie and the soundtrack that I did with my sons right. and my, my band and my friends. Uh, as a new product, I'm looking at it as a new release because, you know, the the black hole, the um, the vacuum um, that was created by COVID all over the world, um, you know, it wasn't a great atmosphere to release a brand new movie and soundtrack. No, but I'm not compl- I'm not complaining because, you know, the whole world suffered, mm-hmm. and you know we've lost. Five million plus human beings from the planet, and uh, so we've the everybody has had more important things to think about than a movie. But um, I understand, and we all understood, and it was a very hard process to get the movie um, finished. When Cleopatra Films first approached me, I thought they wanted me to write music for some movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't realize until, you know, about 10 minutes into the meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, that they wanted uh, to do the story of that I had experienced uh, in the plane crash. <clears throat> and so once I realized that, you know, I told them that, that Judy Van Zant, um, the widow of Ronnie Van Zant. Mm-hmm. Who uh, and and Ronnie Van Zant is the only player, the only name that I am mentioning that has any, uh, you know, class, uh, talent, uh, drive, vision. Um, it was it was all Ronnie. It was his band. Uh, he was the undisputed leader, and uh, I thought that his story, that the story of how he lost his life should be told. And I thought that, you know, Skinner fans all over the world would like to know what happened on that fateful day and night. So I realized that talking to Cleopatra films, which is Brian Pereira and, and uh, Tim Yasui. And they were the ones at the meeting. And I told them that Judy would, she's very litigious. She's very greedy she's very controlling and that she would get a bunch of thousand dollar an hour, New York city, blood sucking weasel attorneys 
and probably come after us. And she did. Yep. So we fought that fight. And Cleopatra, a lot of film companies could have folded and thrown in the towel and said, we quit. You know, she's too much. She's got too much money. Um, but they hung in there. And our attorneys were better than the, uh, her attorneys. And uh, we proved the truth. It went to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Jeez. It was First Amendment. Three judges voted against Judy and her attackers, um, you know, and in our favor in the end when it went to the Court of Appeals. So um, she lost. We won. We finished the movie. But um, you're right, Mitch. I mean, it, we, we were under duress the entire time making the film because Judy and her nasty attorneys were constantly making threats and attacking us and you know just things that weren't true and uh they they accused me of wanting to make the film just for money right. and of course in court i was able to say that i did not ask for one single dollar in the process of making this movie and that is true to this day i don't make a penny on the movie or the soundtrack i did it because i wanted the story told right and that, I think that helped us in the Court of Appeals that, you know, their big thing was that I was trying to cash in. Well, you know, I was the drummer of the band. I was on that plane. I flew that plane. Uh, I, you know, I was there because my heart put me there, right. not because of money. And that's the way it, it has been. And that's the way it is. I didn't do it for money. I don't make a penny on the movie. Right. Um, so we finished the film um and we're very happy about the ruling and uh you know those young actors and actresses were portraying us in our 20s and it was a movie that may never have been seen it could have been shelved and uh so they still put their hearts and souls into the roles so you know to cleopatra films and everybody involved on this on this film, our uh, director, Jared Cohn, um, you know, I have much respect for them. Yeah, and and uh, Brian Pereira always does uh, great work. He's he's done fabulous stuff with uh, Cleopatra and also the uh, the Deadline imprint that that puts out all those different CDs. Um, I guess let's let's talk a little bit about the crash first and foremost. You you you're here today talking to me about it. Why do you think you survived? Was it where you were sitting in the plane? Was it you were have your seatbelt on? Uh, the hand of God came down and grabbed you. What's sort of your view as to why you're here? Well, everything that you just said right. um, is, is a part of it. Um, I have, you know, I've been in a lot of airplane crashes. That was... Uh, one of three I've had many car wrecks <clears throat> motorcycle wrecks I've been shot stabbed I've never I've never thought that um, watched my life go before my eyes I never watched my life flash mm -hmm. um, I always knew that I would survive these these things that have happened to me and um, they were physical things um, as it turns out, 
the plane crashes and car wrecks and motorcycle wrecks weren't the worst thing that I had to survive in my life. Um, but you know, as you say, uh, the hand of God, and I do believe in God. I believe that there's something after this life and I'm not going to, um, get religious and try to cram anything down anybody's throat because everybody has their own belief. And uh, I lived in Jerusalem, Israel, in the castle of King David on Mount Zion for three years. And I studied Old Testament. And, uh, you know, I I just have a feeling uh, that there's something after this and there's a higher power. Um, if I try to think it, think it too much, you know, my little human brain would explode. So I just accept it. I guess that's what they call faith. And uh, so... You know, the actual physical surviving, um, I'm a pilot. My father was killed in a plane crash. All my friends were killed in plane crashes. Um, I've been in three. So when I went to the cockpit, I wanted to assess the situation. And uh, I kept going from the cockpit back into the cabin. I told everybody to tighten their seatbelts, get a pillow for impact, um, you know, lean over uh, during impact everything that I had been taught and my Marine Corps training, you know, I, I flew back seat on uh, A4C Skyhawks fighter bombers um, in the Marine Corps. Uh, I've flown jets, you know, I flew those A4Cs from the back seat and um, I have a feel uh, for flight. So I was going into the cockpit, seeing what was going on, going back into the cabin and, you know, giving instructions as though I were, you know, a steward or stewardess. Um, and finally, I went to the front and, you know, we had run out of gas. Our, we were basically a glider and we had had trouble with the right engine. It was using too much fuel. We used more fuel than we you know, needed to on the way to Louisiana from Greenville, South Carolina. We took on 400 gallons in Greenville. Uh, the plane was a 1947. The gauges were not trustworthy. Um, I flew that plane, and I also flew our plane previous to that, which was a Rolls-Royce-powered turboprop, which was faster and more responsive and uh, a better plane. It belonged to Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, the plane that we crashed was red, white, and blue. They had painted our name on it on the nose. So we kind of felt it, you know, obligated. Well, that's that's our plane, but it was uh, it the way it flew was sluggish. It was a reciprocal um, Pratt and Whitney powered, and it needed uh, some work. So we were going to try to get it to Dallas, and um, you know, at some point, or we were going to trade it in for a Learjet and buy a Learjet. We had the band had agreed to buy a brand new Learjet for, for the band and then two brand new tour buses for the crew and for our backup singers, the girls, the three girls, so that they would be safe and comfortable and they would follow the equipment. And then our flight time would be not two and a half hours, but maybe 45 minutes in a, in a, in a Learjet. So that was the plan. But of course, we crashed and Ronnie was killed. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that, that changed everything. 
uh, our management company, Peter Rudge, um, Sir Productions up in New York City, turned his back on us and left us for dead. Wow. Our record company, MCA Records, Mike Maitland and that crowd, they turned their back on us and left us for dead, would not even help uh, with money that they were going to have to give us anyway for um, everybody. Because I called Mike Maitland at MCA and I said, we need help. We need money. You're going to send it to us over the years anyway. You know, comp troll it in Los Angeles, but we need, you know, we're splattered in five different hospitals and the band and crew needs help. And he turned his back on us 100%, said, there's nothing I can do, and basically hung up on me. That was MCA Records and Mike Maitland and our management company, Peter Rudge and Sir Productions. I was shocked. Um, I got to tell you, you know, that I I was definitely shocked. But I put it in the movie. And the movie is accurate. We did what we could do. Right. You know, uh, on a one million eight hundred thousand dollar budget, which is a, it's a, a good low budget. budget. But do you and, think, uh, by the way, they turned your back on you just because you weren't going to be a profitable band touring anymore? Or did they turn their back on you for legal reasons, like, hey, we can't be associated because we might get sued and we don't want to be part of this? Or are they just jerks? I mean, why did they turn your? Why not support Skinner at that time? Again, Mitch. <laughs> I have to say, uh, you just pretty much covered it. Right. Um, they're jerks. Um, they're they're um, devious. They're dishonest. Um, and you know all of those reasons, everything that you mentioned. Right. You know they they for for all the wrong reasons, um, they turn their back on us. When if they would have just supported us through that. You know, um, everybody would have had a now. Nothing could have been done about Ronnie's death. He was no. gone. You know, he was going to divorce Judy Van Zant. Uh, the divorce papers were in the briefcase of the manager on the plane when we crashed. But of course, Ronnie was killed. He wasn't able to serve the papers. Judy hit the lottery. She inherited a, a billion dollar band, uh-huh. and she gained multi-millions of dollars, and she has used that money over all these years to try to destroy us, the band, and the, and the, and the music of Leonard Skinner. Hmm. But, you know, destroying us little human beings in the band was easy because we're just idiot guys. You right. know, we're just a bunch of dummies. Right. Uh, and she was able to use lawyers and manipulation and lies and cheating and stealing uh, to destroy us in the band um, because we're musicians and we love music, but uh, you know we just didn't know much about the business and how attorneys and people like her work right so you know she was able to destroy us, but she was not able to destroy the music because the music that Ronnie Van Zant wrote, you know I can attest i I go out with my band every weekend. And we play all over the country. A few weeks ago, we were in Minnesota and uh, Iowa. Right. Um, you know, and, and a couple of weeks ago, we opened up for Dolly Parton in Nashville, Tennessee, to raise money for the Susan Komen 
uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Foundation. And uh, it was beautiful. We played at the Country Music Hall of Fame. Uh They asked us to do Sweet Home Alabama and and then uh, Simple Man, which are two incredibly beautiful songs. Absolutely. And those, Ronnie, every song that Ronnie wrote um, is a strong song. He did not write hit songs. He wrote hit albums. And therefore, um, I, I sit for hours after shows and hear where fans were when we crashed that airplane and what the music means to them and how they buried a friend to Freebird or their class, uh, you know, uh, high school prom was to uh, be a simple man, be a simple woman, be, you know. So I hear all the stories and that is my duty because I'm the only member of Leonard Skinner left other than Ronnie. I mean, excuse me, uh, Gary. Gary. I've got Ronnie on my mind. Yeah. Uh, Gary Rossington and I uh, are the two left that were on that plane that are original inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame God. Leonard Skinner members. And um, Gary is surrounded by some very sinister people that keep his friends and people that love him away from him so that they can uh, steal more money. Right. And they they do that. And so, you know, um, you know, I've answered your question because you answered it yourself. I did. I I want to ask you just uh, just this about the moments leading up to the crash, because I had an experience coming back from Hawaii over into L.A. once where we blew the tires uh, on takeoff and on landing. They were dumping fuels. They brought us to an emergency uh, runway and there was plane escorts and we hit the ground hard and we didn't crash. But. It, it, you know, we had the foam and the, anyway, it was it was such an event. And, and we knew going in that this was going to happen. Uh, and, and of course, that fear is just like, oh, my God, I, what was it like in the moments? How much warning did you have that this plane was going down? How, what was it? You know, did, did everybody sort of get on their knees and start praying? Did, did was it, uh, you know, sudden decompression? How did you, how much time and, and well, you just went, oh, shit, this is happening, and I can't stop this. Well, first of all, you know, <clears throat> we um, we we flew at around 9,000 feet. Mm-hmm. That was our – so we were below, you know, the oxygen level of 10,000 feet. Mm-hmm. So we, we weren't on oxygen or anything like that. And uh, we knew for a long time that the plane – had problems. Um, and when I say a long time, I mean, you know, the entire flight that time, we knew we had problems. But we, we you know, we didn't think uh, that we had didn't have enough fuel. And, you know, any pilot will tell you to put a wooden stick down into your tank and visually look and see if your tanks are topped off. And our tanks were not topped off. We took on 400 gallons uh, but we weren't, you know, topped off. So we we knew we were having problems. That's why we were discussing getting a brand new Learjet for right. the band. You know, um, we, we knew that we did not want to fly on this 1947 Convair 260. Um, uh, you know, it, right. it was the, the nomenclature was 240, 260. There were different styles of that plane. Um, so... You know, we knew it was uh, uh, not a good airplane. It, it needed work. Right. 
But you got on uh, the plane anyway. And we got we were, we were a rock and roll band that had to move that, that was, had to get going that was that was so happy to have gigs to go to right that we didn't put enough question into um, whether we got on that plane. We had people that were getting paid lots of money uh, every time we played a show. There was a big percentage that went to Peter Rudge up in New York. And we were paying road managers and managers, and we had a whole line of people that were on the payroll that we expected to give us the straight scoop and let us know if that plane was safe. Now, we didn't realize that all of these people had different agendas and, and things that were important to them. And our safety was not on that agenda. Right. And so they made one mistake after another. And a plane crash, as you well know, you've been, and, and I, I know exactly how you felt. <laughs> oh, trust me. Hawaii. I felt really I felt, fucking yeah, scared for hours. And we were scared. Yeah, you know, we, were, we're not, we weren't scared as long as you were. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have blown tires on takeoff. Yep. And you never know. Nope. You know, uh, I'm a I'm a pilot. I don't have a, a, a current ticket. Nope. Uh, my father was a pilot, and uh, he had just soloed. I was about to solo, and he was killed in a plane crash. So, you know, I know what it means to blow a tire on takeoff. Yeah, um, yeah, and so, and it rattles you, especially on those big jumbo jets that are coming from Hawaii. I mean, <laughs> you you hear that, and you just go, oh. And then they say we're going to have to do an yeah. emergency landing, and you go, oh, great. Yeah, <laughs> especially when you're salvoing fuel. Yeah. When you salvo, yeah, I mean, they uh, were uh, dumping dump, fuel. That was dumping, that was a sight to dumping see. Dumping fuel. Yeah, uh, you, you're just uh, you're keeping your fingers crossed, and you know, I mean, I, still to this day, I mean, I've been in three airplane crashes. I'm a hang glider pilot. You know, my friends were killed in plane crashes. My father was killed in a plane crash, but still, I love to fly. And when I get on a plane. I say my prayers and I leave it up to the higher power like everybody else does. If I have to get on a plane, if I don't, you know, I, I, I'd rather go on the ground. We bought a tour bus for my band. Uh, our keyboard player purchased a bus that belonged to Lenny Kravitz. Um, it's mm-hmm. a 1999 Prevo. Nice. It's beautiful. We keep it clean as a pen. It's pearl white. We call her Pearl. Uh, it'll do 115 miles an hour. We keep it really clean, and that's our home away from home. But if I have to get on a plane, like when I was working on the movie, you know, and I'd have to fly to Los Angeles to meet with the the young people that were playing us in our 20s, and to talk to Brian and uh, the people at Cleopatra and our and our uh, uh, director, you know, I would with I wouldn't even think about it. Of course, I didn't want to, um, but I would, you know, get on the plane and fly to Los Angeles. I flew out there probably, I don't know, I think I remember about a half a dozen times uh, out and back. And as you know, Mitch, that's a lot of takeoffs and landings. That's mm-hmm. a lot of layovers. And and you know the takeoffs and landings are the hardest part of any flights. Yep. So, you know, anything, anytime I see something on TV, about a plane crash, of course, I'm on the edge of my seat watching every single detail. 
and um, and I'm still like that. But you know, for 40 years, Mitch, I I was really sad uh, every time October 20th would come around. I I would get clinically depressed and I'd be morbidly sad. I couldn't be around anybody. I had to spend the day in the woods, you know, um, uh, walking in the mountains. And, and so, but four years ago, cause this last October 20th was the 44th year of the, of the plane crash. Right. So, um, this last, um, October 20th, my interviews that I've done from Honolulu, Hawaii to, to you to up, up, up in Canada, which I don't know if I told you, I, I want to tell you, I love Canada. I loved when we toured in Canada. We played in Sudbury where they tested the moon vehicle that they took to the moon. Uh, you, you know, all the whole country of Canada. Uh, I love it. It's so beautiful. I'm kind of a wimp. I can't stand the hard winters. Uh, that's why I like living in Florida. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a wimp, but you know, the people of Canada and the, and the country, it is so beautiful. Um, my last show with the band before I quit the so-called Leonard Skinner, we were on the tribute huh? tour and was I was in Toronto from Jerusalem. Huh? It was in Toronto. You quit if I'm not mistaken. It was, I was just going to tell you, right. uh, it was Toronto where I left the band because they were doing so much cocaine yep. and they, it, it just, I was in the real Leonard Skinner. I didn't want to be a part of something less. And, you know, I smoke my meat, my weed, I, you know, I, I like to smoke pot. It, it's uh, for post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, it helps peop, a lot of people. There's a lot of benefits from cannabis, but the cocaine and all of that, you know, heavy stuff, man, it, it just changes people. It makes, turns them into assholes. Um, it's horrible. I've seen so many people lose their lives over cocaine and heavy drinking, you know, and Coke makes you want to drink the heavy scotch and Jack Daniels and all that stuff. So you can level yourself out. And it's horrible for these people. I feel sorry for them. And the band, uh, Gary and Dale and the entire band was so gluttonous. You know, it was a gluttonous consumption of cocaine. I said to hell with it. And I, I, you know, I left the band. It, it broke my heart, believe me. Um, but we, they had brought in another drummer that was basically a monster cocaine addict. And they, you know, they they were happy to have a guy on drums that snorted cocaine like they did, you know. So I, I said, I said, well, I guess, you know, I guess the band's got a drummer that they like because they all snort a big, big lines before they play. And to me, that, that was just like sick. And so I left in Toronto. I spent the day walking. I went to the top of the CN Tower with my son Marshall, who wrote music for the movie, by the way. Yeah. And uh, he wrote and, uh, uh, Southern Feeling we, Last Day we, by Marshall. We, we got down to the bottom of the CN Tower after going up and watching airplanes flying under us. It was beautiful. Saw the whole panorama. Then we walked through Parliament. Uh, Marshall and I, he had his skateboard, and we, we walked and, and skated up through Parliament, which was beautiful. And we were staying at the Four Seasons, and uh, 
you know, we just had a great day. And then at the show that night, I just got so mad at everybody because they were like, you know, out of their minds on drugs and alcohol. And I didn't want to play in a band like that. So anyway, you know, I digress. Um, I, I just, you know, it's, I, I love all, I love Gary Rossington, man. I miss him so much, but the management company, Vector Management and his wife and Judy Van Sant, they separate Gary and I, because that way there's more money for them to steal. And I really, I, I played for the Kings and Queens of rock and roll all over the world with Gary Rossington and I miss him. And, and I, I love the man. And, um, He's had seven heart attacks in the last seven years. Jeez. And they, they just push him back out on the road to make that money for them. And uh, he's off the road now, from what I understand. And they've got a band out there that they call Leonard Skinner that Judy allows, that she said she never would, uh, with nobody from Leonard Skinner in the band. <laughs> so, Isn't that uh, strange? And by the way, I've always said this, and people always hate me for saying this, but I've always said brand is bigger than band, and I don't mean that as an insult to anybody, but it just goes to show that when you're Foreigner or when you're Quiet Riot or Leonard Skinner, just that name is going to bring fans in. It's a testament, by the way, to the music you've made, but it is sort of frustrating at the same time that you buy a ticket and you don't get to see anybody who had anything to do with it. You know? Well, I know it's frustrating for the uh, fans and fr- frustrating for people in the business like we are, yep. like you. Yep. You know, I know it's frustrating, and brand is bigger than band, uh, unfortunately. Yep. But it's, I always look at, I equate it this way. If, you know, okay, they, somebody advertises Elvis Presley, okay? Mm-hmm. And you go see the Elvis Presley band, you know, all right. Um, and I, I just played a show with James Burton, uh, Elvis's guitar player. And the other night I went to uh, Steve Cropper, turned 80 years old in Nashville wow. the night before we opened up for Dolly Parton. And I went to Steve Cropper's birthday party for 80 years old. And uh, he's great. He's a wonderful person. And uh, James Burton was there. Uh, you know, Elvis is. So, you know, it's like they advertise Elvis Presley and then you get there and you go, well, where's Elvis? Well, with my band, Leonard Skinner, it's like Ronnie Van Zant was Leonard Skinner. And if and if Ronnie Van Zant is not in the band, <clears throat> you should not call it Leonard Skinner. I mean, I called my band All Points Bulletin, Artemis Pile Band. I would never call my band Leonard Skinner because we're not. Ronnie Van Zant is not in the band, but my band plays Leonard Skinner music better than any band in the world. Ask anybody, I guarantee you. I'm so proud of them. They wrote a song for the movie called Street Survivors that I would put up against any Southern rock uh, hit in the world, uh, including Sweet Home Alabama, which, you know, by the way, Neil Young from Canada. I love Neil. I've talked to Neil. Ronnie Van Zant loved Neil Young. Um, Neil had written some songs, and Ronnie and Neil were going to get together. And I always have dreamt of what that would be. You know, Southern Man meets Sweet Home Alabama. What would that song have been like that Neil and Ronnie would have written together? It gives me goosebumps to even think about it. Yeah, that would have been perfect. And and Neil had written songs for Ronnie uh, and the band. But then, you know, uh, Ronnie was killed. 
And so that changed everything. Um, but, you, you know, um, with the day that I sat with Leon Wilkerson and we talked to Neil, he told us about the songs that he had written that he wanted to get together with Ronnie. We were in Gainesville, uh, Florida at a show there and uh, with Neil and uh, met Neil's mom. So, you know, the, the rumors that go around that Ronnie didn't like Neil Young because he says in Sweet Home Alabama, all he's saying in Sweet Home Alabama uh, to Neil Young is, please do not blame all Southern men for racism because we're not all like that. Ronnie Van Zant loved people. If you were a good person, you're a good person. This is the way I feel as well. If you're a black American or a Mexican American, or you're from Canada, or you're from Italy, or you're a gay American, Ronnie's view was if you're a good person, then you're a good person, period. And that's all he was saying in, in the song Sweet Home, Home Alabama is not all of us Southern men, you know, are racist. And, uh, and I feel that way as well. Yeah, no, a great song and a great, uh, great message. And, and he's absolutely right. Uh, that, that's how I live my life. If, uh, if you're nice to me, I'm nice to you. And then all the rest about what religion you're from or what, what race you're from, or I don't care. You're a good guy. I'm a that's good right. guy. That's, that's how it should be. That's it. Um, I will remind the folks that the uh, CD for um, Street Survivors is available now. You can head over to cleorex.com and uh, search up uh, Street Survivors, original motion picture soundtrack. And uh, the film is is exceptionally compelling, and you should uh, definitely track that down. And uh, as we say in Montreal, Artemis, uh, thank you so much. Well, uh, just one thing, Mitch. I, yeah. I want to say the movie... Um, it, you know, I, I was as accurate as I possibly, possibly could be. Um, for instance, we couldn't use the proper airplane because we didn't have a big enough budget. And, you know, Judy Van Zandt spent two and a half million dollars suing us to stop the movie. And I asked her and Gary to come to the table and do the movie with us. And, you know, instead she got these attorneys and attacked me and, and Cleopatra. But that that two and a half million would have gone a long way. We could have used the proper airplane, but we used a C-117, which is a, called a tail dragger. And the plane that we crashed is tricycle landing gear with the tail up in the air. And uh, they're very expensive, those Convairs. So we used a C-117. I used to fly on them all the time in the Marine Corps. They call them Goonie Birds. But we did the best we could with what we had. So I want to tell you and, and the listeners the movie is not for children. There's nudity, and uh, which is accurate to the time period. There, people used to streak the stage, and girls would flash the band and everything, and we loved it. Um, so there, there's bad language, and there's drugs and alcohol. So it's not for children, and um, you know it's, it is a very intense movie. I had to make it from my point of view because... You know, I couldn't even mention our children. I didn't want Judy and her attorneys to have another reason to come at us. You know, um, I didn't want to use any of the Leonard Skinner music um, because Judy would come at us. And, and uh, you know, my, I can't even use my own music. So I was very proud of my sons 
Chris and Marshall, my band, um, APB, and and, uh, and and all the guys out there in California, Christopher Rittenauer that wrote the Game of Thrones background music. And then my band wrote that, as you mentioned, Street Survivors. Please play it on your show sometime. Uh, it's a very strong song. And uh, we wrote that uh, together. Two of our guitar players, Jerry Lida and, and Scott Rains, co-wrote that with um, Warren Haynes. And I'm sure you're familiar with Warren Haynes. Uh, from the Allman Brothers and Government Mule, and he lives in Asheville, North Carolina. So, I do, yeah. Great, but uh, I, I just wanted to let the fans know that the the movie is intense. It's not for children, and uh, I don't make any money from the movie. I'm not trying to hawk and sell you something. I'm, I just wanted to tell the Skinner fans uh, what happened. And uh, so I came at it from my perspective because of our budget. I'm very proud of everybody involved. And um, thank you, you know, uh, so much, um, Mitch, for, for doing this. And thanks to uh, uh, John, John Lappin, you know, out of Vegas for hooking all of these interviews from Honolulu uh, to Canada. And uh, I believe this, this interview with you, Mitch, is the last one in the series because, uh, of course, it was 44 years yeah. uh, since the plane crash on October 20th. And um, but you know, I, 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 as I said, I, I don't want to be sad anymore. And of course, I'm somber at this time of year. I'm reverent and and everything, but I still I revel in the music. And I, I have eight children and grandchildren that I play music with that are brilliant in spite of my dumbass. And, uh, you know, I'm 73 years old. I get to play music where everybody in the crowd knows every word to every song, fist bumps. And, and uh, I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm a very happy 73-year-old. And, um, you know, of course, uh, there's a, a certain amount of sadness. I miss my friends. I, I love them, but we all live, we all die. It's how you live your life, right? Yep, it's absolutely, absolutely. And you, you certainly have left your mark with a, a lot of um, iconic music. And uh, anyway, it's a, it's a powerful story, and I encourage folks to, to go check it out. And uh, merci. Thank you, sir. Great pleasure. Merci. I love Canada. Thank you. Cheers. Have a good day.